Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11, we'll read the, all 10 verses of the chapter. In chapter 10, Moses had given the ninth plague, plague of darkness, and Pharaoh rejected him and said, I don't ever want to see your face again. If I see your face again, I'll kill you. And Moses said, okay, fine. Now, chapter 11, is he's still in Pharaoh's court. It's, it's, it kind of has a flashback or maybe an internal dialogue with God, but he's still in Pharaoh's court because he's going to talk to Pharaoh in just a minute. So Pharaoh says, I'm done with you. I don't ever want to see you again. Now we come to chapter 11. And so imagine Moses is still standing in front of Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people. And let every man ask from his neighbor, and that's the, that's the Israel, uh, Israelite people. And let every man ask from his neighbor, and every woman from her neighbor, articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me, and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. The main point of this passage is that God is in charge. If you, if, if you want to know what the main point is, that's it. God's in charge. God's in control. A result of that is that things don't work out like we expect them to. Because God's in control, things don't look like humans think they should in various ways. So God's in control. Moses is still in Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh has rejected. The last plague didn't work. He's rejected him. So Pharaoh says, one last warning. Now, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, two interpretations here. One, it's, it's a flashback to when God told him this, and I think chapter 5 or 7, he said he would do this. This could be a flashback. I think it's probably God telling Moses in the moment, sort of in his spirit, announce the final plague. God had already predicted this would happen. But now he's telling Moses, uh, tell him this is the end. Because Moses didn't know how many plagues there were going to be. We know that there were 10, but Moses didn't know that. So God is saying, uh, this is the end. So, the, so the, the historical, the, the concept of the passage is God declares the end. Now, remember what we've been going through. Nine plagues. It's been going on for months now, maybe a year. Egypt is devastated. They're in poverty. There's famine that will be coming soon after this. And God says, okay, it's, it's enough. The final plague is this death of the firstborn, and it will work. He declares that it's going to be successful. He says, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go. And he'll drive you out. 
So Moses is probably thinking, good. Tired of showing up in front of Pharaoh. I'm going to get out of here. So God says, it's going to work. But before that, he says, speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, articles of silver and articles of gold. So God's providing for Israel. See, Israel's going to have to go on a trip. They're going to leave everything behind them, their, their home, whatever they had acquired, they're going to leave it and go into a foreign country. And if there's one thing you need when you go into a foreign country, it's resources. And at this time, the easiest resource to have was silver and gold. It was the most valuable thing you could have in the smallest amount. And so God says, go to your slave owners and ask them for their money. That's normal, right? That's what everyone does in history. He says, go to your neighbor who is your master and say, give me your silver and your gold. But why would that work? And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So he says, I'm going to provide for you at the Egyptians' expense. He'd already predicted this. He said, you will plunder the Egyptians. I don't know how much gold and silver went out of Egypt, but it was a lot. They basically paid them to leave. So they, so God provided for uh, Israel at the Egyptians' expense. So God is still in control here. And then finally, we have the announcement of the final plague. So it's a warning, one more warning. And then Moses said to Pharaoh, so God said, tell him this is the last plague. So he says to Pharaoh, and we see four things that the plague announces. God will arrive himself. It says midnight, but they didn't have clocks. But midnight means here is the middle of the night, the darkest hour. Their time was different than ours, the way they judged days. So, so midnight for them would be when it's darkest and you're at your most vulnerable, that's when God's going to show up. He's not going to send Moses. He's not going to send a plague. He's not going to send locusts. He it says, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. God's going to walk the streets of Egypt in the middle of the night. It's not a good sign, especially if you've been rejecting him. So God says he will arrive personally at the darkest hour, at the most vulnerable time. And what's he going to do? The worst possible thing. Kill all the firstborn. Now, the word firstborn here uh, could refer to male and female. And later we're going to see that every household lost somebody. So God's going to walk house to house and kill the firstborn in every house. No distinctions. All the firstborn will die from palace to stall. Pharaoh's firstborn will die. The magician's firstborn will die. It later says the prisoner who's in the dungeon, his firstborn will die. Your cow's firstborn will die. All the animals' firstborn will die. It's devastating. It says nothing's ever going to happen like this again in Egypt. Every single firstborn in every single house in Egypt was going to die. And God was personally going to show up and make it happen. No one was going to be exempt except for non-Egyptians, the people of Israel. And it says that not, none of the against none of the children shall a dog move its tongue. Dogs back then were like rats. No one liked them. This is saying that a dog won't even growl at you when you walk past it. That's how safe Israel is going to be. Not even a do dog's not even going to make a sound when you walk past, not against the animals or the people. Why? So that you may know that I make a difference, that the Lord makes a difference between the Egyptians and the Israel. It's a sign of the covenant status. God says, I'm making Israel special because I made a promise. Just to remind you of that, watch what I do here. 
We're going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt and do nothing to the Israelites. Why? Because they're special. They're my people. And everyone needs to know that there's a difference between my people and those who are not my people. So Israel is protected as a sign. And then finally, Moses predicts, and you have to imagine the sort of the hierarchical, royal, uh, official status that's happening here. A official representative is standing before the king of a country. It's it's very formal. There's certain ways to approach this, and there's certain... uh, If you say the wrong thing, someone's embarrassed. Have you ever heard about those things where an ambassador um, insults a foreign representative? It's a big, big deal. Won't shake his hand or doesn't bow the right way or says the wrong thing. It's a big scandal. Okay, back then it was even a bigger deal because the king could just kill you on the spot. So here's what Moses says to Pharaoh. This is what God's going to do. And all these, your servants, so the court of of Pharaoh, all his leaders and magicians and representatives and nobles, people who sort of ran the country, all of these, your servants, will do what? shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Pharaoh's been saying, I won't let you go. Moses is saying, your own people are going to bow before me and beg me to leave. You don't just say that to anybody. You don't go before another king and say, all your people are going to worship me. They're going to submit to me. But Moses is done. He said, This is the end. God's going to kill your people, and your people are going to beg me to leave, and they don't care what you think. The people have been turned against Pharaoh here. You see what's happened? God has turned Pharaoh's own people against him. He's given Israelite favor, Israel favor in their sight, and his own people are going to bow down. It's a prediction of what's going to happen. And then he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger, and I'm sure Pharaoh was not very happy about that either. But there was no negotiations at this point. Negotiations had happened, you know, weeks and months before. Okay, so that's what happened. That's sort of the meaning of the passage. But here's the bigger problem that's been here the whole time. We've touched on it briefly. The bigger problem is what uh, C.S. Lewis calls in his book the problem of pain. There's a problem in this story, and it's this. God kills everybody himself. Uh, if you've ever suffered, I'm sure you've asked the question, why? In this passage, when their children died, they knew the answer. God killed them. That's a problem for Christians. It's, in my opinion, in my evaluation, this is the biggest problem philosophically and sort of intellectually for Christianity in the world. The problem of pain, the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. The problem of bad things happening in this world. Because what do we say God is? God is love. But then children die. And so this is a problem, and it has to be dealt with. And I think this passage is a good place to deal with this idea of not just bad things happening, but God causing bad things to happen. God causing suffering. God doesn't just kill the Egyptians who resisted him. He kills the firstborn. Some of those firstborn were not grown. Some of them were children. Some of them were babies. He kills the animals. Do you guys like animals? I'd say about half of you like animals. Do animals deserve to die for what the government does? Right? Congress makes a bad decision and you kill your dog? That doesn't seem fair, does it? That's what God does here. He kills these animals. 
The animals didn't cause any of these problems, but God kills them. So great suffering throughout all the land of Egypt because God killed them. Now, if you've talked to unbelievers, one of the things they're going to say is, I can't believe in a God who does this sort of thing. A genocidal, vindictive God who kills innocent people. Now, you may not agree with that or not, but that's a real question out there. That's a real problem. And as soon as suffering hits you, you're going to ask the same thing. Why me? Why is this happening? What's going on? This doesn't seem right. Because it's not just back here. God still allows or causes suffering. Just last week, the trial of this gymnast, uh, the doctor for the gymnast, 150 women claimed that he sexually assaulted them. That's bad. That's really bad. That is horrible. And the question you have to ask is, where's God? Where was God when hundreds of women were being assaulted? What about the bomb that blew up in Afghanistan last week? Killed 95 people in a marketplace? Where was God then? It wasn't a war zone. It was a market. There was a hospital there. Where was God? There's no simple answer here. If you're waiting for the simple answer, there's no simple answer. And Christianity and Christians are going to do themselves harm if they pretend to have sort of the straightforward answer to these. You don't have an answer for those questions. You don't know what God was doing when those women were assaulted. You don't know what happened in Afghanistan. You don't know why that happens. People in our church are suffering with things that are not their fault. You don't get cancer because it's your fault. You get cancer because this world is broken. But you know who's running this world? God is. God's still powerful. Okay, so that's a problem. Problem of suffering. The problem of pain. So C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain. Another way to put it is, God is good and powerful, then why doesn't he stop evil? It's either because he doesn't want to, which means he's not good, he's evil, or he can't, which means he's weak, or he doesn't exist. That's a very real question for a lot of people. Maybe God doesn't exist, because when I look at the world, it doesn't look like what I think God would do. A good, holy God doesn't allow, allow this stuff. It doesn't make sense. Children dying, innocent people being hurt. So the problem with that is, if there is no God, suffering still exists. Stephen Crane wrote this poem, A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. Nevertheless, replied the universe, that fact has not created in me the slightest feeling of obligation. This is, in my opinion, in, in the opinion of many people, one of the greatest problems in the world. And when we teach from the Bible, we must give an answer for what the Bible teaches. Or at least say we don't know the answer, but the Bible still teaches that God killed a bunch of innocent children. And God's still in control. And we still believe God is good, holy, all these things, but evil still exists and pain still exists. So what's the answer? There is no answer. There is no answer. 
for why individual things happen. God has the answer, but we don't. So when someone says to you, why would God allow my child to get sick and die? Your answer should be, I don't know. I don't know. Why am I suffering so much? You're, I don't know. Why did God allow those women to be abused? I don't know. If Christians can't admit that they don't know, we've got no influence. Because then it's us creating answers makes us the answer. The Bible doesn't give us the answer for why these things are happening in our world. So let's not pretend like we have them. Being word-centered means taking what the Bible says and giving it to people, not making stuff up. So what do we do? We look at this passage and we look out through, through the rest of the Bible and we look at suffering in a different way. We look at suffering in light of God's character. We do know what God is like because the Bible tells us what he's like. We don't know why suffering happens, specifically in different instances, but we know who God is. So we take what we know and apply it to what we don't know. That's faith. And we rest in what we know, what God has revealed, and we give it to other, we apply it to things we don't know, we can't understand. There are four attributes that we see in this passage and that we see in the Bible that are going to help us deal with pain and suffering. Because the pain and suffering are not going away. They're going to get worse for a lot of people. So we have four attributes of God. They're going to put pain and suffering in context and help us understand how to deal with it. The first thing we see, and these are not all feel good, if you're wondering. Here's the first one. God's character is just. He is just. He rewards evil with, with punishment. Look in this passage. What is God doing here? He goes throughout the land. He kills the firstborn. This is not an isolated event. Go back to chapter 1, and what had Egypt done? Take all the baby boys and kill them. Throw them in the river. Commit genocide against a whole group of people. God doesn't just say, ah, bad people do bad things. This is an example of God saying, this is justice. You killed, you will be killed. Your people killed, your people will be killed. It, it continues, Moses tried to suppress the population, or Pharaoh tried to su suppress the population of Egypt by hard labor. How do you suppress the population? You work them to death. You work them to death. You work them so hard, they die. And the, the uh, Israelites said that to Moses. He said, you've given Pharaoh a sword to kill us because they had taken the straw away to make them make bricks without straw. Pharaoh had been committing genocide for years now. And God says, that's enough. There's justice in this world. Look at the, uh, what he says, let every man ask from his neighbor and every man, woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave people favor in the sight of Egyptians. That's justice. That's God saying, you took their freedom, they're going to take all your money. That's, that's not special revelation. That's God saying, you took something, now give it back. Now, we don't all like the word reparations. I'm just teaching the Bible right now. People are in slavery. God says, take all their money. You will plunder the Egyptians. Why? Because they had earned it and more, but they took as much as they could get at that time. Justice is saying, you steal, you pay back. And God is making that happen. But another thing, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of Egyptians. The worst part about slavery is not taking your money and your time. It's the dehumanization of people. The Israelites had been dehumanized by the Egyptians. That's how they got the people to throw their babies in the river, because they didn't view them as people. How do you kill babies? 
make them not seem human, make them a fetus or a clump of cells, then you can just kill them with no problem. That's what had happened here. And so what does God do? He says, you've been treating them like subhuman, so I'm going to restore their status. And what does he do? And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. And it goes down and says, and your servants will bow down to me. What's happening? God is enacting justice at a very high cost. He's saying to Egypt, you treated them subhuman. I'm going to devastate your country until you see them in a way that you'll give them money. Their status is so high that you'll give up things for them. You will bow down before them. You will beg them to do something. God is reversing slavery here. He's reversing oppression. That's justice. I don't know if that always happens, but it happens here, and it happens sometimes. God reverses the effects of people's oppression. So when he kills the baby, it's not a random event. When he takes all the money from the people, when he kills their, it's justice. If you've seen the news lately, you saw the, um, the trial of, of this, I'm not sure his name, don't really care actually, uh, who assaulted the women. There was a father in the court, and his three daughters were assaulted. And he, he asked the judge for five minutes alone. And he's, the judge's like, we don't do that thing. She said, we don't do those things here. And he's like, I'll have it right now. And he charges them. Was anyone like, I can't believe he did that. He shouldn't do that. Yeah, they're like, okay, people, we're not supposed to do those kind of things, but we understand why. Why? Because when people do bad things, we want bad people to be punished. So when that father charged him, we understood that it wasn't his place to do it, but we understood the feeling. Why is God any different? He sees his people being oppressed and abused and killed. A God that wouldn't react to that is not a God. We just don't like it when he does things we don't think he should. But the, the thing here is that God is just and he reacts against evil in a very hostile way. Very hostile way because he hates it. In a way that we would react against some forms of evil, God reacts against all evil. And that's what this passage is showing us. It's also a warning because we're evil. Meredith says, know Christ as your savior or fear him as your judge. This God right here that killed all the babies, he's still around. And he's still going to enact justice against evil. And if you maintain your evil status, God will kill you. If you're not in Christ, then you're in the world. And God is going to destroy the world. That's who God is. But more, God is also sovereign. When you look at this passage, the main point of this passage is that God does what he does. And if people don't like it, he doesn't care. He does it anyway. Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. God says, no, I'm going to do my own thing. And you're going to be a pawn. You're going to do what I want you to do, whether you know it or not. You won't let my people go? Fine, I'll kill you. I'll kill your kids. I'll kill your animals. I'll devastate your land. God is showing here that he is in charge and he gets what he wants. He is sovereign. How is that? Look in chapter, in chapter 11, verse 1, and the Lord said. The Hebrew doesn't say the word Lord. That's an accommodation to Jewish sensibilities who don't like to say the word, the, the name of Christ. But the Hebrew word is Yahweh, Jehovah, something like that. And it means I am. It's an absolute statement. 
The one who created the world is speaking. Not some tribal God, not some Christian God. The one who created the world, the I am, the original existence, is speaking to creation. And until we accept that, nothing else matters. We're trying to work around babies dying and animals dying. and stuff. No, start with the creator is speaking. If you won't accept that, nothing else matters. If you don't accept God as creator, then why should you listen to him? He's just another voice. He is the creator. And because he's the creator, he is the standard. He is the I am that I am. He's not conditioned by anything else. He is the one that normalizes everything. He is the standard by which all things are judged. That's what his name means. So when we read this passage, let's not get distracted by the word Lord and think of it as a sort of master or boss or powerful being. It's the I am. It's Yahweh. I am that I am. I set the standard for creation because I created it. I made it. This answer is partly the problem of evil. C.S. Lewis said, he was an atheist until he was in his 30s, he said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. Many people have the same argument. But how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. See, the problem of evil is a problem for everybody. Ortland says this, problem of evil is a problem for everyone. If God exists, we have to explain why evil is here. But if God does not exist, we have to explain why we find evil objectionable. The Christian can struggle with evil. The skeptic must also struggle with good. The Christian can weep over crooked lines. The skeptic must explain what makes them crooked. What, uh, a famous atheist, I can't, Hitchens, I think his name was, uh, wrote a book called um, Christianity, or God is po- or Christianity is Poison, I think it was called. And one of my professors said, what's wrong with poison? Who said poison was bad? Who decides that hurting people is wrong? There's what is, we can observe it, and there's what ought to be. You can't get ought to be from is. Where'd you, where'd you make that jump? Who told you to make the jump to what isn't? What you should do. See, the words like should, when you hear a lost person say should and ought, they're admitting God exists. They have to. Otherwise, who said it should be this way? Who said it's wrong to kill babies? Who said it's wrong to abuse women? Who said that? Who decided that was wrong? So evil is evil because God said it's evil. Because God is good, therefore bad things happen. Only in a Christian worldview, and I mean only in a Christian worldview, can you explain evil. See, let's not compromise and say, well, all religions have some truth, so let's meet halfway. No, we don't meet halfway. Does God meet anyone halfway in this passage? He says it's my way or the highway. And like ACDC said, that highway is the highway to hell. We only know bad things because there's a good thing. God is who he is, and so he sets the standard, and so we can say evil is evil because God is good. God has a right over his work. God's not on trial here. We are. See, people like to think that they can put God on trial. Well, I don't know if God should. Why are you speaking? You're on trial. God is the creator. God is the judge. He says, you, I will determine your end by how you react to me, not the other way around. It's a fearful and terrible thing to resist God, to fall into the hands of an angry God. 
it's not a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry man. Because that'll end eventually. God is the standard that you don't want to break. Be careful about questioning God. You can ask honest questions, but when you start questioning God's right, that's a terrible place to be. You will lose that battle. One man says, you can have no greater sign of confirmed pride than when you think you're humble enough. Talk to Christians. Sometimes you question God because you're like, no, I understand who he is. I understand, but I still got questions. Be careful because you probably don't understand. First Corinthians says, he who thinks he has knowledge knows nothing. Many of us think we're humble. Be very aware that you're probably not humble. See, there's a, there's a desire inside of man that does not want to conform to God. And he'll figure out a way to do it. Sometimes it's obvious. In uh, Timothy McVeigh, the man who in 1995 blew up the building in Oklahoma City, uh, one of the worst domestic terrorists we had, he was killed. He was executed. This is the poem he gave for his last words. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those were his last words. You can't scare people straight. They want to do what they want to do. And we're just the same. We may mask it in humility and Christian talk, but we have a heart in us that does not want to accept God as, as Lord. It's a heart of darkness. Be aware of that. And, we, and, we, and it reveals itself when we say, I can't believe God would do something like that. The God I worship wouldn't do things like that. How could God do things like that? Romans chapter 9 says, talking about this passage, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? He doesn't give an answer. This is what's great about this passage. He doesn't tell you why. He says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Before you ask the questions, make sure you realize that God is in charge and he should be. And every question you ask after that submits to that. Because sometimes the answer is you don't get to know and you don't have a right to know. That's what this passage is saying. Who are you to reply against God? Who are you to say that he's wrong? Who are you to say what he should do or what he shouldn't do? Nobody. We are the creatures. And so when God in this passage says the firstborn will die, the correct response is that's his right. That's what he can do, and it's okay. As much as that we recoil against it, the recoiling against it is sin. We think it's good, noble. We would protect these people. No, you're on Pharaoh's side. Pharaoh would protect his own people. God wants to kill him. The right side to be on is God's side, even when we don't understand it. God is all-knowing and wise. It's the third characteristic. God is working a cosmic, eternal plan that started long before this world existed and will continue after it. Look at verse 9. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. This little story right here is a tiny little story in a million-year plan. 
God's got a plan. So when you things, bad things are happening, you're like, I can't believe it. All you can see is the bad thing right in front of you. Kind of pull back, look at this story and say, there's something bigger happening here. This bad thing is a little tiny speck in a vast story. God's working a plan. Lewis says, we don't like this. We want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simple, that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. Wouldn't we like that? No, we have a real father who does have a plan. And it's not just to make everybody have a good time. What's that plan? To glorify himself in Christ. And how does he do that? By taking sinful people and bringing them to himself. That's a plan, and this story was part of that, and your suffering is part of it. See, you can handle a lot of suffering if you know there's a point to it. This passage is telling us that there's always a point to God's actions. If people are suffering, that's part of God's plan. That may seem harsh, but it puts meaning to suffering. It makes it something other than just random. Non-Christians don't have that. All they've got is random bad things just randomly happening for no reason. That's a terrible place to be. God knows the best way to care for his people. Do you believe that? God knows the best way. So what God gives is what's best. Lewis continues, says, to be God, you have three options here in this world, in this life. To be God, to be like God and share his goodness and creaturely response, or to be miserable. Those are your three options. To be God, which you can't, to receive what God gives you, or to be miserable. If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, then we must starve eternally. If you won't receive this story, you have nothing else. Peter said to Jesus, where will we go? Who else has the words of life? Sometimes they're hard to hear and they're hard to digest, but there's nothing else to eat. That's it. There's purpose in suffering. Hebrews 2.10 says, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons of glory to make the captain, that's Jesus, of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus suffered more than any of us, but there was a purpose to it. We have a purpose to our suffering. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever you see in the world, there's a reason for it. I don't know the reason, but it's working in God's plan. But finally, and the most important thing, submitting to God, but Sort of the thing that's going to help you sleep at night and help you be at the hospital and be okay is that God is good. Yes, he's just and sovereign and wise and all-knowing and holy, but he's good. And because he's good, we can trust him. He doesn't tell us all what's going on, but we can trust him. We can trust his goodness when we suffer and can't explain it. So when you deal with people who are suffering, don't try to give them a reason for their suffering. Tell them how good God is, that they can trust him because he's good. How can we trust him? How do we know he's good? What would God look like on this earth? I bet he'd have a great life, right? It's his world, it's his cre- creation. God's like, here's how good I am. I'll show you what I do on this earth. So he came down as Jesus in the incarnation, God with us, and what happened to him? One of the titles for Jesus on this earth was the suffering servant, just like the, the Israelites, suffering servants, slaves being oppressed. So God himself came down to this earth and suffered. 
God's not arbitrary. God's not vindictive. God's not sitting up in heaven moving things around. God came down and suffered with us. So when you say to someone, when someone says to you, why am I suffering? You can say, I don't know, but trust God. Why should I trust God? Look what he's doing to me. You can say, I don't know what's happening right now, but look what he already did. Look what Christ already did on the cross. You're not a Christian if you don't center on the cross. The cross, the salvation that Christ provided at his death is the foundation and the lens of Christianity. We joke about kids, we ask them a Bible question, their first answer is what? Jesus. It's kind of funny, but it's not funny. It's true. We just don't understand the implications of it. See, what the cross does is it tells us how we should view God when bad things happen. If God was willing to die for us, then whatever bad thing's happening now must be okay. It must mean that God is doing it for our benefit. The event, the historical event of Christianity has to be true, or Christianity doesn't make sense. Lewis says, Christianity is the conclusion, is not the conclusion of a philosophical debate on the origins of the universe. It is a catastrophic historical event following a long preparation. It is not a system. Christianity is not a system into which we have to fit the awkward facts of pain. Christianity is itself one of the awkward facts which have to be fitted into any system we make. Christianity is this. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, was the Son of God, died on a cross in about 33 A.D. in Israel, and rose again. That's a fact. Now put that fact into your system. And if your system can't handle that fact, change your system. So you've got some other facts, too, about pain and suffering and hardship. Reconcile those facts to the fact that Christ died for us. God is good. He's good when you suffer, and he's good when you don't suffer. He's good when people are abused and when they're not. He's good when people die and when they live. He's always good. And we know that not because of what we see. The newspaper will not tell you God is good. Your life will not tell you God is good. You know God is good because he suffered for us. And a vindictive, tribal God does not die for his people. But a good God does. That's who we worship. Hebrews chapter 12. When you're suffering, here's your answer. Looking unto Jesus. That's it. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We look to Jesus because we see someone who suffered for us. And you can trust that person. That's the only person you can trust. The one who suffered completely for you and has set down the right hand of the throne of God. The same person that suffered for you is in charge while you're suffering. Doesn't that comfort you? The one who was tortured for you now sits on the throne while you suffer. And if he was willing to die for you, he'll get you through this one way or the other. I don't know how, and you probably don't know how either, but he will. You've got an option here. You can accept everything God gives you because you know who he is, or you can look at the facts and judge God. Accept Christ because of his perfection, and because of his goodness. And everything else in your life will make sense. Let's pray.